श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए कोर भक्तवृंद की जाए और प्रेम आनंदे सो discussing from Bhagavad Gita sixth chapter and as i was explaining this morning the sixth chapter is about ashtanga yoga and um while it was pointed out that the chapter speaks about ashtanga yoga for largely for the purpose of contrasting it with bhakti yoga for the sake of showcasing bhakti yoga which is what the gita is really about being spoken as it is by bhagwan to a bhakta from krishna to arjuna the corresponding path that leads to realization of the bhagwan pitra the absolute is bhakti krishna is the supreme manifestation of bhagwan arjuna is a, is a prominent devotee so the subject must be bhakti but other spiritual disciplines are also brought up and as i say by way of contrast show the difference between bhakti and other types of disciplines and how the fruit of uh, various disciplines that is desirable is contained within bhakti and and uh, how ultimately the fruits of bhakti in their highest reach are not found within the limbs of the uh, trees of other spiritual paths and in 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 that uh, discussion then uh, sham gopal brought up a question at the end about um how to read the text then should we read for example this chapter as an isolated section that speaks really about astanga yoga in a way to as i say con- in, in contrast to bhakti to ultimately as a chapter to, to bring out bhakti uh, even though it ostensibly speaks about something else and and yes or he said is it possible to read it and to get something in terms of the the path of bhakti directly from each of the chapters and the answer is yes to that also so as we go through we'll see the extent to which we can do that that latter and i think we did that to some extent this morning as well so having uh, set the scene here for where we are we'll hear verse 3 krishna says arulukshurmunam yogam karma karnamuchate yogurudhasya tasyaiva shama sharana uchate he says for the beginner desiring perfection in yoga action is the means whereas for one who has attained yoga cessation of activity is the means yidahi nindriyateshu nakarma sanusujjate sarva sankalpa sanyasi yogurudhastadochate when one is attached to neither sense objects nor action itself and has renounced all material motivation one is said to have attained yoga one should elevate oneself by one's mind not degrade oneself indeed the mind can be the self's friend or enemy bandhur atmatmanastasya yenat mai vatmana jitaha anatmanastu shatutve Bharte tatmaiva shatrubhat. One who has conquered the mind, for one who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends. But for one who has not conquered the mind, it acts like an enemy. Jitatmana prashantatma paramatma samahita sitoshna sukadukeshu tata manapamanayo. A person who has conquered the mind and is thus peaceful is poised in realization of the Supreme Self. heat and cold pleasure and pain honor and dishonor are all the same to such a person so these are some interesting statements and um as we see here krishna speaking about the beginning of yoga and um the culmination of yoga 
and um, largely about attainment in yoga, uh, and less so about the beginning of yoga, which has been addressed to an extent thus far in the first two verses, wherein Krishna has explained the the very uh, spirit of, of yoga, if you will, the kind of essential requirement or what essentially constitutes yoga, that being a, a detachment from the fruits of one's action. So it speaks of uh, a kind of a selflessness or a self-sacrificing. This is the core of yoga. So if someone doesn't have this in place, then um, even if they go through the motions, the ideas, then they're not really a yogi. Further along those lines, then, in terms of the beginner, if you will, not that that isn't in place for the advanced yogi, but to even begin, to even really sit, which is much of what yoga is about in terms of a technique, one has to have acted or moved in a way that is yogic. By moving or acting in a way that is yogic, one becomes qualified to sit and actually employ yogic techniques and um, in a way that will be fruitful. And that movement that leads to the capacity to sit is movement or action or karma in which the motivation behind the movement has changed from a motivation for tasting and enjoying the fruits of one's action, which then fuels one's action, the desire to work and act, is fueled by the carrot at the end of the stick that's being waved. To contrast that, then, to work for the sake of of working, it's just like it said, uh, uh, an honest day's labor, something like that. So there's, there's, there's uh, in English anyway. There's a, there's something to be said for um, how to act, to be properly motivated in one's ordinary actions. That in itself constitutes a method of, of purifying oneself, of making oneself uh, honest. And in common English parlance, this is a, a well-known saying. Then, uh, an honest day's labor. One feels good. They worked hard for the day. They did an honest and they put their time in, something like that. So, in a more sophisticated sense, of course, in the context of the culture in which the Gita is spoken, it means working according to prescribed duties for the different classes of of humanity, which correspond with the psychic condition of uh, of of each living entity. under the influence of the modes of nature and so forth and so on. But uh, all this is somewhat, we're in a different context. We don't live in a a, a, uh, Varnashram kind of society. But nonetheless, um, the idea is to act not for the fruits, but but, uh, to be in in the present and not act for the future. Uh, not live in not live in a, in a fantasized kind of future about what I will do once I get the results, kind of, but to live in in the, in the moment of what you're doing at at the present. And of course, this is very much uh, important when applied directly to spiritual practice itself as well. We'll get to that. Uh, so, having at any rate emphasized this, how to move in such a way that you can actually sit. Because if your movements are otherwise, then when you sit, your mind will be somewhere else also, and you will not be able to harness it. And acting, uh, you know, they say, no, no pain, no gain. This is the Rajaguna. Then, so you're. Uh, so when we act along those lines, then the mind will be influenced by Rajaguna, and it will, then it will have big shape. It will be, it will be distracted by many thoughts. You will not, you'll not be able to focus it. So, so the beginning of yoga, Krishna is kind of reiterating it again here very briefly. He says, for the beginning of yogi, the means is action. For the advanced yogi, the means is inaction. 
So, to move and and to sit and to look at it in the context then of bhakti yoga. We're looking at it in the context of being of astanga yoga, but how can we look at it in the context of of bhakti yoga? There's a very nice poem, a very powerful poem written by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur quite some time ago, uh, in maybe the early early part of the 20th century, around 1912 or 13, and in the society, if you will, of devotees and Vaishnavas, Gaudiya Vaishnavas in West West Bengal, he wrote wrote this poem, it says, Tumi Dushtamana, Tumi Kishir Vaishnav, Pratishter Tari Nirjanenat Ghari, Tava Harinam Keval Kaitava. It's a long poem, this is the first stanza. It says, Dushtamana. He addresses his mind as uh, as has been spoken of in some of these verses. If it's not controlled, then it's an enemy. Yoga is about, in many respects, controlling the mind, right? Which, as I'm pointing out, requires addressing our actions also. That's why it's hard to control the mind. Um, but if you control the senses, then there's scope for controlling the mind. If you control your actions, that's a little easier to do. Mind is called the sixth sense. It's kind of the invisible sense, an internal organ. So uh, you have to start outside and move, move, move inward. So anyway, his prayer, Dushtaman Tumikishir Vaishnav, he said, he addressed his mind, oh, my dear mind, what kind of Vaishnav are you? Pratishter tade nirjanir ghari tavahari nam kebola kaitava. During the, this period, Gaudiya Vaishnavism was not very well respected in the uh, Hindu, uh, educated Hindu uh, classes of society, class of society. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu started in Nityananda Prabhu this Gaudiya Vaishnavism about 500 years ago although it has its roots, obviously, in texts and and uh, tradition and so forth that uh, much predates that, drawing from those texts and applying them in a particular way, relevant also to the to the appearance of Chaitanya himself, this Gaudiya Vaishnavism was born, so to speak, in the world. And it was quite uh, revolutionary in its time as spiritual insight will always appear to be. It's uh, um, it's something that is spirituality, ultimate reality, being alive and dynamic. It's kind of a, a, uh, a growing thing that is already fully grown, something like that. Love is full, but it expands nonetheless. <laughs> so... <laughs> That we get some some idea of it from material experience, as I've said before. We in the world we cannot rest until we find love, and when we find it, then we start to move again in another way. So it's uh, it's uh, it's full of movement. It's dynamic. It's uh, it's full. You feel full, but it's growing. So this is kind of contradictory: be full and to grow at the same time, but. Uh, uh, love is not something, even materially speaking, we can get our hands on. I don't think anyone would have the audacity to write a book entitled uh, The Meaning of Love. <laughs> that would be pretty presumptuous, I think, <laughs> uh, to, uh, to say that one could uh, put it into words. There was a song when I was a kid, it went something like this. I wanted to say I love you, but the words got in the way. So, um, ultimate reality being divine love, it's, uh, it's something that um, saintly persons will speak about it, and often in ways that it's never been spoken about before, with some continuity, of course, from the past, but nonetheless with new insight. And, and so, um, saintly persons are always kind of stirring the pot, so to speak, and finding something else there. It wasn't found uh, earlier. It wasn't brought out previously. 
they saintly persons don't come just uh, it's it's interesting because they they do come like guru for example guru is is not a foreign imposition rather uh, guru is described in the, in the text for example in chaitanya charitamrita as a, a manifestation an external manifestation of the lord's godhead's presence within the heart which is kind of close to our own inner voice or conscience which knows what's best sometimes we have a sense that we know it's but we don't listen to that voice very 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 well we listen to our mind and our and mind corrupts our intelligence intelligence works to facilitate the mind's demands and uh, and so forth so that inner voice we call it chaitya guru appears externally that's why when we meet our guru he or she seems to be speaking in such a way of course it depends where we are along the path but in a way that articulates that which we already kind of sense we already have a feeling about it and 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 he or she speaks in such a way that sometimes said in english oh they spoke and he spoke and it really hit home it really touched uh, my heart so we're hearing something that doesn't seem that foreign there may be different language sometimes in a situation like this i speak english you speak finnish or polish or swedish or or the book is in sanskrit or bengali where uh language has its limitations but um in that regard once bhakti siddhant sarsitaku wrote that poem i'm speaking about spoke with some enthusiasm on an occasion and he spoke it in english and his bengali disciple said if you had gurudev if you had spoken in bengali then we could have understood better he said i'm not speaking in bengali or english well, just sit there i'm listening to it also as it comes through me so um it has it, it resonates with us in a way we don't feel uh, it's a foreign or external uh, imposition upon us rather that it almost in the, as it develops more, more readily then he or she is saying what what i feel is true i i couldn't put it in those words that well myself but something like that it's your own good self <laughs> better is better self speaking your own higher self speaking to you so anyway bhakti siddhant sarstataku he was uh it's interesting because he was speaking in a dynamic way which is new and challenging and so forth that side is there also and the other side is there and some people will in other words hear the challenging new and and rather than coming and just patting you on the back so to speak challenging your understanding and so they'll be comforted by that some people will like to keep the company of people who are more more uh spiritually advanced than themselves because by that company they'll they'll progress the material tendency is to want to keep in the company of people who are less competent than ourselves and we allow ourselves to think that we're more competent than we are we deceive ourselves if we keep the company it's a good tendency then we don't find it that often in the world to to find people who have that type of tendency who like to be in the company of those who are more um who are i want to say higher than them in some respect whether it be it could be in any field they 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 feel there's the potential for growth there in other words so spiritual life is something like this we sit before a saintly person we can feel two things we can feel very comforted because we can feel our potential the spiritual person can see our potential and speaks to our potential not so much to what we are at the present that has to be addressed also but what we are potentially and so the two it's this contradictory in other words the two things are there i feel encouraged i feel like i i feel when i start to feel my potential then i start to feel very dignified and very uh, high and and then i also feel my reality my present reality so both both things he addresses both the present situation which is rather unbecoming for us attached as we are to so many petty things and and uh, identified as we are with a very small and narrow sense of self nationalistic sense of self a sexual sense of self uh, a bodily and mental sense of self 
we have desires through our senses we get impulses from the mind registers I should say I guess impulses of the world and we make determinations of what's good and bad and happy and sad and that's who we become then what makes me happy that's what I am what makes me sad that's also what I am indirectly and what's my good what's my bad what's my hot my cold that's me but these things are just a, just a particular reading of the world through the medium of the mind and senses another person has a different reading it's not a clear perception of the nature of being if I were red glasses the world will appear red if you wear blue they'll appear blue someone with no glasses will see you know some multicolored world so we limit ourselves by our perception of reality through the medium of mind and senses we think that because we have a mind we can think and know because we have eyes we can see but the mind gets in the way of our knowing eyes get in the way of seeing and so forth so so in good company, we feel our limitations, our present conditioning, and have a sense that we need need to progress, but we'll also be encouraged because we can feel our prospect, a sense of what we could be, what we are ultimately, if we apply ourselves. So with the insight that Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur was speaking about, it was comforting to some, and he gathered a, a number of students but it was discomforting for some also because he was speaking in a new way about spiritual life and uh, bringing new insights and so forth. And um, sometimes the, the tendency is there that we, we come and we join a spiritual group and it's exciting and then we attach ourselves to it in a certain way, to the externals of it and so forth and it becomes mechanical then our, our participation, our practice and so forth. And if someone comes and speaks about it with a different vocabulary, we can't understand it. So, saintly persons are meant to come and kind of unsettle us, so to speak, so that we have to force to think about what we're doing and uh, and why and what our understanding is and so forth and and uh, gauge ourselves where we are on the path and so on. So anyway, he was this kind of a person. And in the circumstances, that great tradition of Gaudiya Vaishnavism brought to the world by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu 500 years after his appearance, had become somewhat covered over what it really was about. And there were many imitations of it, and misrepresentations of it. And so Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur, addressing those misrepresentations, he wrote this poem. He said, Tumi Kishya Vaishnav Dustaman. He says, by my, my dear mind, what kind of Vaishnav are you? He's addressing the mind. Mind is central to the yogic experience, Right? conquering the mind, capturing the mind, purifying the mind. The mind has a particular color and, uh, to it, and, uh, and we've identified ourselves accordingly. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said in his Shikshastakam about the chanting of the name of Krishna, Cheto Darpanamarjanam, the mirror of the mind, hmm, is cleansed by this chanting. So our mind is, is, is reflecting on the world in a particular way, an image is coming there, and an identity is formed. So to clear that, uh, to take the mind in, in bhakti then and direct it towards Bhagwan, towards Krishna, that the mind's attachments to worldly things might be transferred, so to speak, to Krishna and an identity will be born from that also, a serving identity. So he said, my dear mind, what kind of Vaishnava are you? He said, you are sitting in a solitary place chanting the holy name, but you are thinking, sitting in a, in, a, in a secluded place for doing bhajan, means for doing meditation. You've given up work, you've given up action to sit and quietly chant the name of Krishna, which, as we're hearing from the Gita here, is the business of those who have attained yoga or who have at least some uh, greater... Uh, status of, of attainment within the context of the ladder of, of yoga. They can sit. He said, many people were sitting in the name of um, attainment within bhakti. But and their minds were not controlled because pratishter tarinyajanera they went to a solitary place, but but they were only thinking about pratishta. Pratishta means 
that just see, look at me, I'm a big yogi. You see, yoga is not for this. And bhakti also. Bhakti in particular is for what? Putting Bhagwan in the center. Not myself. Interior life means for putting ourselves in the center, our sense of self. As I said before, the mind is very um, small in what it can conceive of. It conceives of, for us, a very narrow sense of existence. And it doesn't even make us very happy. But we live as if everybody should live with inside of it. The small world of our mind, we think, we act as such, as if we think everybody should be comfortable within our mind world, even though we're not comfortable within that. So this is not a very reasonable proposal to one extent or another. This is material life. So yoga means, of course, then to come out of that off-centered kind of living of, uh, of mental identification based on attachment and so forth. And bhakti, which is a kind of yoga here, so we want to, we want to take this to bhakti, then it really means this in a big way. If it is the supreme expression of yoga, then it must take oneself out of the center to the extreme. And you still see the difference then. If by yoga practice I take myself out of the center by placing the paramatma in the center, and in meditation I sit and identify with the paramatma perfectly, in the perfection of Astanga Yoga, with an admixture of bhakti, that it might be perfect. I can then, through bhakti, mixed with yoga, yoga misra bhakti, I can attain uh, darshan of the paramatma. I can become so absorbed in the object of love, the paramatma feature of Bhagwan, which we discussed this morning, that I lose sight of myself, myself, and selfish sense of self is completely displaced. I step outside of myself and fully identify with the object of my love. If I can reach such a height in, and, and come, for example, to Shantarasa, which as I said is not very thought of very highly in, in bhakti school, how much is the self put aside, the individual self? How much have we displaced from the center ourselves, which is what yoga is about, quite a bit. But now if we look at bhakti, shuddha bhakti, and we go to the Brajalila that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was directing us towards through his, through his uh, Namsankirtan, this kind of uh, spoke, I think this morning, Goloker Premodhan, the other night, Hari Namsankirtan, the wealth of Golok he's bringing through Namsankirtan. To what extent then is the self displaced? Or look at Jnana Yoga, where, we, where the object of attainment is Brahman. You take yourself out of the picture and you sit. But in Bhakti, then, what, what happens? It's one thing to sit and admire. Another thing to, to be busy in, in active service. In other words, the serving ego. It's one thing to take out the enjoying ego. Another thing to develop a serving ego the extremity of which is, of course, represented in the gopis when Narada was asked by Krishna. He said, Narada, I have a headache. Can you please relieve me? He said, how can I do that? He said, ask my devotees for for the dust from their feet. So he went around, but no devotees would give the dust from their feet. (laughs) They said, I'm not going to give that and put that on Krishna's head. So then Narada made the report, no no devotees will do that. He said, well, go ask the gopis. So I didn't think of them, just village people. So he went to them and they surely said, here. And he said, don't you know what will happen? He said, yeah, we'll go to hell for that. That's an offense to put your feet on God's head. But if he wants it, then we'll do that. Take it. You see how much the self is being displaced comparatively. This is bhakti. This is another example of why it is considered to be, if, if yoga is about taking the, 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 your, your, your false sense of self that you've put in the center around which you hope everything will revolve or through which lens you're seeing the world to displace that and put 
the Godhead in the center, orient yourself appropriately in relation to the center. Bhakti does this to the extreme. It's, it's an advocacy of divine slavery. It's one thing to sit peacefully and admire. Another thing to, to, uh, to enlist in, uh, in a kind of uh, slavery. Of course, it's divine. It's, it's, the point is, the extent to which we ourselves are not in the center is the extent to which we will actually be happy because we're not the center. Therefore, in Vaishnavism, we have a saying, das, das, anudas, that the aspiration is to become the servant of the servant of the servant. When I once spoke with Pujapat Sridhar he said, Vaishnavism is, is indirect. We will take the fifth position. First there is Krishna, then there is the Vaishnav, who serves Krishna. Then there is the servant of the Vaishnav. Then there is the servant of the servant of the Vaishnav who serves Krishna, and we'll come after that. The further down you go on the uh, ladder, so to speak, of serving, in the material world there's a saying in English that you have to step on other people to get ahead. And in Bhakti we say you have to have your head stepped on to get ahead. <laughs> Let other people step on your head. It's a, it's a, it's a, the further from you, the center you take yourself, and, there, and thereby the more you put the Godhead in the center, the more you see then everything in relation to the Godhead, and everything thereby becomes worshipable by extension, by seeing it all in relation to the Godhead. And you become content to tender to the needs of the smallest need, seeing it all in relation to Bhagwan. So, Bhakti, this is another way by which we understand its, its, uh, its uh, supreme position in the, in the context of yoga and spiritual discipline. So Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, what, what you're sitting as, 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 as devotees, as advanced devotees, advanced yogis in the Bhakti tradition, but your mind is thinking of pratishta. Pratishta tari nirjanirakari. Tavari nam kaitava. It's just a cheating. You're chanting the name like this, but your mind is thinking, just see, uh, I'm very advanced. So he was detecting the kind of the, he was, he was telling the temperature the, uh, of the climate uh, of, of, of Vaishnavism at the time. And he was saying of his own tradition, he was critiquing his own tradition and uh, saying that many people in the name of uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's tradition are simply imitating advanced devotees. And while they're externally looking like that, sitting in a secluded place, chanting, appearing very renounced, their minds are only thinking about distinction, honor, and that the, the people will think that I'm very famous. It's sometimes so that Tyag brings bog. Renunciation brings enjoyment. If you give up material enjoyment enough, you will get other people's attention and they'll come and give you things. There was a guy in Vrindavan who uh, used to stand on one leg. I think I've told a story before. He used to stand on one leg. He was a yogi. And, and that's what he would do. And, and his, but his real objective was, I'll stand on one leg and then people will come and and um, honor me and so forth. And surely they did. They came and built him a house and a temple. And then he got some students and they started standing on one leg and, and so forth. So they were really, they were doing renunciation, but they were, they were giving up material things through a form of renunciation and austerity, but it was only bringing them material things, reputation, fame, and and they were living on that. So there's boga, there's enjoyment, and there's renunciation. There are two sides of the, of the material coin. I like the world, I don't like the world. It's world-centered. Serving, that's another thing. And within serving, within the context of serving, there is enjoyment and there is renunciation, both in ways that aren't harmful to us. So in bhakti, if for bhakti's sake we are to enjoy, then 
our senses, we will do so. And take nice the remnants of Krishna's prasad. It's enjoyable. We are honoring the remnants of Krishna. There's this consciousness behind that. And we don't hide the fact that it's that it's pleasurable, pleasurable to the tongue as well. And if for bhakti's sake, for the sake of service, we have to renounce something, then we have no objection. So both tendencies that our material life runs on, enjoying and renouncing. We enjoy a thing, we get tired of it, we give it up. And we go back to it. We give it up and we go back. These two tendencies. When a bhakti is in the center, then they have the pro- they're appropriately harmonized. And we can go progressively up the uh, spiritual ladder. So, apparently at the time, a number of people were sitting and imitating, just chanting, but their minds were somewhere else, and they were thinking of to bring attention to themselves. Bhakti is so much not about bringing attention to oneself. It's so much about, in a, in a loud way, with drums and cymbals and, and so forth, and through all expressions of uh, human activity, bringing, putting Bhagavan in the center, putting Bhagavan in the center. Just the whole idea of having the altar in your home, and it's uh, you know a nice home, DAD, elaborate. So, what a prominent way in the home it puts the uh, uh, Bhagwan in the center, compared to an empty room for meditating on a white wall or something like that. So it's uh, so anyway. The, the, in the name of Bhakti, they were simply putting themselves in the center, and then people would come, of course, and that's how they would get their maintenance. So. People didn't have a a, um, a very religious orientation, and their um, caste status was questionable, so they become Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Hmm? Put on a loincloth, go and sit with some beads, and then pe- foolish people come and give them food and money, and they make a living like this. And, and then they'd start to think they were advanced, and then they would make them students, and the whole sham was going on in the name of of Gaudiya Vaishnavas and Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthakur, a great experiencer, he detected that. So he wrote a poem like this. And basically it's saying just what's being said here. And therefore he organized a new kind of um, mission, if you will, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And it put people to work. In the beginning, what does Krishna say here? Work is the means. In the end, then... Giving up work is the means. In the beginning, you have to work and act in a particular way if you are able to, if you want to sit, ultimately, and be active internally, within, on the inner landscape. So he was, this is the verse, this is how he was applying this, for example, in the bhakti tradition. That's why he started, as I say, his mission with monks, and they were going out and canvassing and... Uh, and printing books and uh, and so forth. He left the sacred uh, place of Mayapur and went to Calcutta and built a temple there. And the, and uh, the no Vaishnavas would go to Calcutta. That was considered to be the Maya, to be in the in the in the geographical uh, area called the holy place was thought to be the holy place. But he wanted to address the fact that being in the holy place means being the it's it's we where we are is not relative to where we are geographically as much as to where we are in our mind, where we are in our consciousness. Like my groomers used to say that I may be sitting here, a fly may land on my lap, but how close are we? We may look close physically, but hopefully we're lifetimes apart in terms of spiritual evolution. What is the fly perceiving? And what am I perceiving as to the nature of the world and so forth? Quite a different perspective. So it's a question of consciousness, worlds of consciousness, if you will. So the whole Bhagavatam is about worlds of consciousness. We hear these different worlds in the Bhagavatam. Where are they? We can head out in NASA, you know, Mars landing, you know, looking for Satyalok and uh, Tapalok and, uh, <laughs> and so forth. But uh, you find them in the inner kind of Landscape. They're talking about planes of consciousness and corresponding uh, perceptions. So, 
uh, and where we are really is where we are consciously. That has something to do with where the mind is, again, which is central to yoga. So here he says, the beginning, work is the means, action is the means, and in the end, then yoga is sitting or, or giving up action is what uh, yoga is about. So within the context of bhakti, same thing. We don't sit uh, and and tell our students, now you're on the Paramahamsa path, so go and act like a Paramahamsa. Go sit in the forest and just chant. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsitaka gave his students many things to be engaged with, worldly type things like printing books. It, you have to pay attention to print books. And your publishers here, our hosts, they know it's a very uh, consuming <laughs> life to publish a magazine or to publish a book. Uh, requires a lot of uh, attention and uh, and you have to be one-minded and focused and so forth. And so. He devised this type of uh, approach to bhakti for beginners. And it's in concert, of course, with how Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself taught. By his example, in the beginning he went and began a mission for outreach and all that involved. If your convictions are something that you have to voice, then when you voice them, you really listen to them. When it's coming from your own mouth... hmm? And maybe when you say them, somebody says, I don't know if I agree with that. Then you have to think and you have to reply and so forth. And, and then if you didn't get it right, you have to go back and read the book. And what did I say? Well, how, do, how do I answer that question? And so forth. So he found that he, he developed for Vaishnavism at the time a means through his mission of engaging people in a way that was very pragmatic. That's exactly what's being said here. So to put it in a bhakti context, work action was the means. And the action was, of course, selfless. And the whole idea was to displace the self from being in the center. And he also, of course, he also cautioned that in the name of outreach and so forth, which is active, one can also succumb to putting oneself in the center. Later on in his same prayer, he also mentions that, which came to pass, to some extent, in his own the succession of his, of his mission. And so then we go back to the other side, preach against preaching, <laughs> and so forth. So, uh, so what's being said here about Astanga Yoga is also applicable to bhakti, and even, uh, as I say, uh, more so, as much as this is about displacing the center, oneself from the center, because the work, the action in bhakti, is not merely prescribed duties the fruit to which we give up. But in bhakti, you see, prescribed duties are, are duties that also correspond with one's psychophysiological makeup and so forth. Those activities may be dovetailed in bhakti, but the activities of bhakti per se, they're a little different, aren't they? What are they? Hearing and chanting about Krishna, Worshipping the deity of Krishna, Avalakshan Bhakti, Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Smaranam, Parasevanam, Archanam, Mandanam, Dasim, Sakyam, Atmani, Vedanam. Now you think about these activities and the extent to which they displace the self by putting Bhagwan in the center. I mean, you're standing there doing Bhakti to Krishna, offering incense and the food and everything. Hmm. This is putting Krishna in the center. That's Archanam. Chanting, it's chanting the holy name of Krishna. That's the extent to which it's, it's putting Krishna in the center compared to engaging in activities that one may be psychologically and physically suited for and cultivating a detachment from the fruits. It's a way of taking the self out of the center, the false sense of self, which is based, which is a fruit hunter. That's what it is. It's a taker, an exploiter. But this is very rudimentary and hardly as comprehensive as bhakti, which, which directly, it's one thing to put, to try to take yourself out of the center, another thing to put Bhagwan in the center, then immediately you have to be put out of the center. So this again is, is another reason why its uh, position in the yoga uh, disciplines is um, as exalted as it is. These aren't exaggerations, these aren't sectarian a sectarian type of uh, advocacy, bhakti over, over jnana, bhakti over, 
yoga and so forth. No, if we a comprehensive study of the revelation of the sacred texts makes this very clear. But the problem is, it's we're so much uh, addicted to being in the center that um, Vyas, for example, with regard to revelation, wrote so many books that very indirectly trying to take the self out of the center. He wasn't feeling completely satisfied. Therefore, the, he was urged by Narada, well, here's why, you haven't come out and said it. Write the Bhagavatam, which directly puts Sri Krishna, the enjoyer, in, in the center and showcases bhakti for what it is. So, in our own tradition, then the same thing holds here. In the beginning, Work is the means. I probably used to say what? Work now, samadhi later. That's right. Work now, samadhi later. This is a, this is a translation of this verse. <laughs> Work now means now means for beginners. Samadhi later. And samadhi means trance. It means means the perfection. The inner inner life is 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 has been awakened. And uh, one is absorbed therein, and so obviously the attraction of the world has waned. Hmm? And how? By working in relation to the world in a particular way. So as I said, there's action, a certain type of action, a certain type of movement will facilitate one's ability to sit. So we have, in our sect, then we have some movement, if you stay around me, then I have so many things for you to do. If you listen to me, then there's so many things that are important to do. And then we have time for sitting also, right? Time for sitting and chanting. And then we should measure and see how well I'm acting by how well I can sit. This is the way you to tell your temperature. If we're acting, sacrificing the fruits, then we become more enthusiastic to come and sit and listen, right? More more easy to hear, and the mind is more peaceful. So this is very practical. So, work now, samadhi later. There's a disciple, a godbrother of mine, who who wanted to sit and chant, and he told probably wanted to stop doing any other activity, just sit and chant, so probably told him to try it. So he sat for one month just to chant. I think I've told the story before, and after about a couple of weeks, his mind started to drift, and he couldn't chant. And he was, someone would bring him food once a day, under the door, over the food, and he would sit and chant, eat something, and push the plate out. And they would take it like this. And so after a while, he began to think, I hope they're going to bring some of that, uh, some 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 of those, uh, some halva this time for lunch. That'd be good, and or some fruits. And, and uh, and then the plate would come, and he'd say, oh, there's no fruit here." So his mind would start thinking like that, and then and then uh, I wish they'd come a little earlier with that food. <laughs> when's it going? When's it going to come? And so forth. All types of material thoughts, then calculations and whatnot, started to affect. And he got up, and he went, and he left, and he told Prabhupada. And Prabhupada said, "All right, I said you should go out now and." Do Sankirtan and organize and help with the mission and so forth. Be busy and come back in ten years and try again. <laughs> Work now, samadhi later. Something like that. So this is right out of the text of the Bhagavad Gita. In relation to Astanga Yoga, it has its application in Bhakti Yoga. I mentioned earlier today that the Paramatma makes his appearance here as well in the text. And... Um, in the verses I read this uh, this evening, that um, that takes place. Paramatma again is the object of the focus. Let's say, let's say the object of love. More accurate in Stanga, we say the focus. There's not a whole lot of love there. Not love to try to pull oneself out of the center and stop being a an exploiter and so forth, but. Not like we find in bhakti, not the kind of giving to the to, to the center. So the focus of the center, the paramatma, and Krishna says that it's possible to use the mind in such a way to to help one, and um, 
This is what the yoga is about, to develop a tendency by training the mind so that the mind will start to come around on its own. You see this samadhi is a kind of a, of a spontaneous movement of the mind towards the center that uh, has been its uh, focal point. In uh, Yoga is a sophisticated means for cultivating that type of mental absorption where the mind goes automatically. Krishna talks about the mind as being an enemy or the friend. So in the beginning it's kind of an enemy. In the end it starts to become a friend. In my commentary I've given the story of how in bhakti, to go to bhakti yoga, one fellow said um, to another fellow, they were walking, and uh, one fellow saw the vulture flying in the sky, and he said, oh, Haribo, Haribo. It means chant the holy name of Krishna, of Hari. And the other fellow said, how are you looking at a vulture and you're saying Haribo? Chanting is about life, and vultures are all preoccupied with death and dead things. They're living off dead things. And why are you looking at the vulture? And, and so well, when I when I see the vulture, then I think, oh, vulture. My mind thinks vulture uh, circles over the dead things, and at the at the crematorium, then they bring the dead cows, and and the vulture. My mind goes to the dead cows, and there, these cows have died naturally. Then they take the skin and they make murdanga drum with that, and you beat on the drum and hari bol. Okay, so, so his mind was going automatically, you see, to the kirtan. Hmm? It's going to the kirtan just by seeing the vulture. He thought hari bol, hari bol. His mind. So the world tends to, with the, the the trained mind to remind one, bring one back to the center, just as it distracts one when it's uncontrolled. And yoga is, an, is a sophisticated method for, 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 for bringing about that kind of mental control. In bhakti, of course, it's, it can occur in kirtan. And interestingly enough, kirtan is, as much as it's the end, it's the beginning also. It's the most, the harinam is the, is the broadest outreach of, of bhakti and the deepest inward reach as well. In Brit Bhagavatamrita we find what? By by Nam Sankirtan and the Samadhi and the Smarnam, the meditation that it fostered that Gopukumar could go to go go to Golok. He told his own story. By chanting the names of the Lord that were dear to him and remembering the pastimes that comes from that chanting in Bhaktisanda's prayer that I mentioned in the end he says Kirtana Prabhave Smarana Swabhave. He says, meditation comes out of naturally out of kirtan. And kirtan is the farthest outreach. In other words, you may not even you might be just walking in the street and they may be doing kirtan and you may hear it. And thereby participate in it. And it's possible by the power of kirtan to experience this mind going stopping, so to speak, from thinking. That you feel some ecstasy from kirtan it means the mind is letting go of you. This is hard to to attain by yoga, but in hari kirtan it can happen, even for a neophyte. Sometimes, in a, if just a beginning person comes and chants, and they feel some bliss, a wave of bliss. The mind stops. It's so absorbing. So, uh, some samadhi now, a little bit. <laughs> You give one some taste of what what what, uh, what lies ahead, but not much scope for that in the beginning of Ashtanga Yoga. Again, the power of of bhakti. And having spoken about the mind and its being kind of central, it can work, work one way for you or one way against you. He's speaking more now about advanced devotees. He says, "Jitatmana Prashantatmana Paramatma Samahita." So again, he start, he's describing more here the symptoms of those who are advanced in yoga, who have attained the object of their meditation, of their focus, and the samadhi that comes from that. This was described in brief in the second chapter of the Gita. Now he's elaborated upon that 
what Jarjun asked her, what's a, how do you recognize an advanced person? What is he like? How does he sit? How does he walk? How does he talk? And so forth. So some further explanation is given here in this section of the Gita. So in this way I want to speak a little bit about how these texts, which are ostensibly about Astanga Yoga and only indirectly speak about bhakti, can also be applied directly as well to speak about bhakti because it is a kind of yoga, so they have their application. Any question? Yes. Um, actually, was happened to be reading the sixth chapter a while ago, and I was wondering about in, the, uh, in verse 10, in your commentary, you mentioned the ksipta mudha viksipta ekagra mirodha. These terms, could you... Tell us something more. Well, why don't we get to that? When we get to those verses. Okay. We'll see if we can go through the chapter a little bit more. But those are different conditions of the mind. Yeah. Another question? Yes. I was thinking a bit when you were speaking about Pratishta and how, how that also comes when you're doing service. I was reading Madhurya Kanamini on the way here, and, and that it's also mentioned that that one of the effects from bhakti is that you you know you get attraction from other people, but like it's kind of like how how do you protect yourself against that if that happens? Like how can you stay clear from pratishta? Pratishta is very uh, pratishta means like prestige distinction being in the center. Incidentally, in the poem I was talking about where Bhakti Siddhanta was um, speaking about Pratishta, he also says, Pratishta is like the, is like the excrement of a hog. Who, who, and hogs eat excrement, so it must be pretty bad. Is the, the idea something very much to keep, uh, keep away from. This is an extreme example he gave to speak about how bhakti is, is about putting oneself out of the center. And as Sham Gopal is mentioning, to, when one starts to become, starts to do that effectively in the, in the stage of sadhana bhakti, then uh, one experiences subhada or auspiciousness and people start to like you. You become popular and, uh, and your, your company is desirable and so forth. So, some some respect is brought to the devotee. Madhavendra Puri is mentioned in Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur's poem, and how he and uh, he was in Remuna, and the deity there was offered this sweet rice, which 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 was famous in the whole area. Madhavendra Puri had come from a very distant place, and his deity on on the mission of his deity, his deity had told him. Please bring me some sandalwood. I'm very hot here in India. You take the sandalwood and make it into a paste with water and you put it on your body and it cools you. So there wasn't any sandalwood in the area, so Madhavendrapuri walked thousands of miles to get the sandalwood. And when he was a thousand miles away, he visited the temple in Ramuna, and this deity was famous for the sweet rice that he ate, Krishna deity. And so in his mind he thought, if I could taste that sweet rice that's offered here, to Gopinath, and when I get back to Vrindavan, I can make that kind of sweet rice for my deity. And then he thought to himself, oh, I just see, I just want to taste the sweet rice. That's how fallen I am. I'm thinking that. But the deity understood his heart was pure, and so in the night, he, when the sweet rice was offered, he took one of the cups of sweet rice and hid it. And then he woke up the pujari, the priest, in a dream and said, I've taken one of those cups of sweet rice, I placed it over here. It's for Madhavindapuri. Please go and find him and give him that. So the fellow went, the priest went and woke up and found the sweet rice there. So he went out at the market. Who is, who is, na- who is named Madhavindapuri? Gopinath has stolen the sweet rice for you. Hmm. And so all the people, Madhavindapuri, Madhavindapuri, the deity is stolen. So all of those fame and all came to Madhavindapuri and he, and he left town. He immediately packed up and left town. They were ready to build a monument for him and worship him and so forth. So he ran away from that. Of course, it just keeps coming after you more and more. <laughs> so uh, I don't think you have to worry about it too much. 
at your stage, but <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, as one develops in sadhana bhakti, it's a fact these things happen. One becomes uh, appreciated and popular, and and um, but because he or she is advancing, also, when you advance in bhakti, you know. It's not by your own power. It's you feel oh, some some wave of grace has come to me, and I've I've, I've made progress. The, the, the experience is so outweighs whatever one could do to warrant that. That one knows, oh, it's coming from above. This is uh, like as if like that's what they mean by when the airplane came and took me up, something like that. It comes, it consumes one. So, knowing, which is is possible, of course, in, in sadhana bhakti, not just bhava bhakti, but in sadhana bhakti, deep experience, uh, that that one's, um, as it may be, popularity, whatnot, is a result of grace. Then the devotee he or she doesn't mistake it as being as a result of their own effort, and naturally and effortlessly, it's attributed to Bhagwan. His passed off to him. Oh, and Prabhupada, we would praise him, Prabhupada, you know, or someone would, you've done so much, yeah, it's all Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has done. I'm doing nothing. He's keeping me here, just uh, doing my nonsense. Something, all his grace. Without, you know, any calculation, he would immediately think in that way. Someone asked me something along these lines. How is it that advanced devotees, they, if they're not careful, they fall down from and so forth, and I didn't think that it was so much the case, but because they know their advancement, where it's coming from, it's not coming from their effort. Another question? Yes. Um, I've been reading uh, lots of, lots of, actually I've been trying to read all, this, all the books you're reading, uh, all, the, all the books my friends have given me, and there's, there seems to be, seems to be something wrong with, with the way I, I absorb the text. Uh, it's it feels the same as uh, well. I'm a nurse, and I I was reading this book that that was written for doctors to study, and I understood every word they the the book hold, and I knew what the words meant, but the message message just didn't sink in. And it feels just the same way here. I I'm familiar with the with with the most common terms terms used in in this literature, but um, it's a, there's something blocking it. I I just I can't get a grip of the of the of the little red thin line that I should get and. Mm-hmm. I'm just. I, I just feel like I'm in in this place where I cannot move forward. I don't think that your experience is one that um, many devotees don't also have. But there's something that makes you want to read the books and understand. I think that's what's important. There's something that draws you to uh, uh, to the to the texts, an interest, and you you have some basic idea what they're about. And they're not. It's not a light topic. It's a, it's a pretty deep topic, and it's a serious topic. It's talking about ultimate reality, the nature of being, and so forth. So, you have some interest in all these things. I think that means a lot. That's significant. I I wouldn't feel too much of an outsider in a sense if I was you. If I would, if you would draw back and think, what are your interest is now? Once you're you're interested in the subject, which is a huge thing in itself. Then to understand it in some detail, well, that's another thing, and it may it takes some time. It's kind of a cumulative effect, hearing the terms used in the same way and in different ways, and and spoken about by different persons. Like I may speak about it, and I have to speak for you, who's who are beginning, and for other people who have been here for a long time. If I speak only for you, they might get tired. Yeah. If I speak only for them, you might fall asleep, right? So it's, uh, it's kind of a balancing act for someone like myself. And then someone else may come and afterwards and speak to you, 
only for you. If I'm to speak only to you, then I will try to speak in such a way that you will better be able to understand everything that I say. So it's anyway, it's a kind of a cumulative effect. I think that the main thing that that you should consider is the fact of, of your interest in this subject. You've come to this place out in the island and here, and uh, you have a noble purpose in mind. So, uh, it, it, and that's what's most at the heart of being able to understand any of these things. Yeah. You have enough understanding to, to, of what's going on here to come here, to think there's something going on here that may be of value. But it takes a while. I had to listen to Prabhupada for quite a while to figure out what he was saying, but I didn't stop listening, even though I couldn't understand it at first. And he had a different accent, intonation, the way he used words and so forth and so on. I used to listen very carefully and what is he saying? I knew he was saying something and I understood the words, it's the English language, but how he was putting them together, exactly what he meant. I'm still trying to figure that out. So <laughs> that's, that's quite a bit there. So it takes it takes a little time. And your experience is not something, as I say, that is foreign to anyone anyone here. And and even if you and it's not expected that you understand everything that's being said, you'll still go away with something. Because it's 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 not um, it's not really conveyed through the language as much as it's conveyed from one sympathetic heart to another. Language is a medium and so forth, and, 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 and the logic of it and so forth, which we'll, we'll understand the word, we'll understand the, the theory and so forth, but to affect our hearts and bring about a change in our life, that requires something more than just an intellectual or language exercise. So your heart's in the right place, you're sincere, for you've came here. And people have told you that my heart's in the right place, <laughs> therefore you came to hear, hear from me. So I think you'll benefit from the, from participation. And in time, if you keep trying to read, you'll understand more. Okay, so we'll stop there. Srimad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai, Sri Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai.